0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, edited by Sumaya Awad and Brian Bean. As Israel's latest brutal assault on Gaza continues, it's more critical than ever to cut through the misinformation and deflections propagated by Israel and its Western allies. In Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, a range of contributors systematically tackle important aspects of the history and context of the Palestinian struggle against settler colonialism and apartheid, offering a defiantly socialist perspective on how full liberation can be won. As Noura Erekat puts it, The volume provides the reader with an internationalist framework defined as a commitment to anti-imperialism and uses it to place Palestine into local, regional, and global historical context. The book connects the past to our present and, despite the daunting odds before us, sustains a commitment to a socialist future where all of us are free. Find Palestine, a socialist introduction, at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and 20 pounds, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Any attempt at understanding Hamas has been stigmatized as supporting Hamas. To provide context is to effectively condone the massacres of Israeli civilians on October 7th. Condemning Hamas must be the very first sentence out of your mouth before saying anything else about what's happening. And even that is not good enough. But understanding Hamas is precisely what must happen if we are to end injustice and create peace. Because the monstrification of Hamas, above all else, serves the purpose of mystifying what causes violence and what will end it. It obscures the political roots of the violence and thus also the political solutions that would end it. The opponents of peace accomplish this by fetishizing Hamas's violence so as to mystify the fundamental violence that is the Israeli occupation, the apartheid state, and ongoing genocide. Today, I'm doing the deep historical analysis that demystification requires with Tarek Bacconi, the author of Hamas Contained, The Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance. I do not know of a more important book that you could read on Palestine right now. The monstrification of Hamas is central to how the entire conflict has been structured, obfuscated, and contained. Addressing the political aspirations of Hamas to end apartheid and occupation, and recognizing that this basically reflects mainstream Palestinian political aspirations well beyond Hamas supporters, this is precisely what's necessary to reach a political settlement that will facilitate peace by establishing justice. The mainstream discussion, however, is overwhelmed by Hamas's violent tactics, which we do discuss at length in this interview. All you hear on the news about Hamas's politics— is that Hamas is, quote-unquote, dedicated to Israel's destruction, which is meant to sound really alarming, but is in fact the starting position of anyone who is an anti-Zionist. Not, for me and so many others, as an expulsion of Jewish people from the Levant, but as the replacement of an ethnostate with a democratic, pluralistic alternative. It is not condoning Hamas's methods of armed resistance to understand that this violence has political drivers and political solutions. The reality is that Hamas has at various moments repeatedly expressed its willingness to accept a two-state solution on 1967 borders, an astonishing concession that would represent giving up 78% of historic Palestine. Israel, however, does not want to settle the conflict. Its leaders have never supported ending settlement in the West Bank and East Jerusalem and recognizing Palestinian refugees' right to return to the homes from which they were expelled in 1948. Israel has instead, Bocconi writes, quote, adopted a military approach that defines Hamas solely as a terrorist organization. This depoliticizes and decontextualizes the movement, giving credence to the persistent politicide of Palestinian nationalism, Israel's process of erasing the political ideology animating the Palestinian struggle for self-determination. That's quoting from Bocconi. Israel and its allies have used the demonization of Hamas as the key tool for the obliteration of all political and historical context. And the demonization of Hamas is part of making Gaza into a place full of people who are meant to and deserve to suffer and to die. Bacconi writes, quote, The image of Gaza as a terrorist haven has been all-consuming, as has its image as a war-torn pile of rubble, sterile and devoid of life, The collective punishment of millions has become permissible, comprehensible, legitimate. If you're pained by the massacre of Israeli civilians, as I am, then it's rationally incumbent upon you to do what's necessary to seek a political settlement to the conflict, because that is the only route to peace. But it's also ethically incumbent upon you to recognize that far more Palestinians than Israelis, far, far more, have died since the state of Israel was violently established in 1948 on 88% of historic Palestine, or since 1967, when Israel occupied the remaining 22%. Far more Palestinians than Israelis have died even this month, despite the recent massacres of Israelis near the Gaza border briefly driving up their death toll to unusual heights. This macabre mathematics doesn't quote-unquote justify a single lost life, but it is precisely the context that you must understand if you don't want more lives to be lost. For those of us in the United States, our government's massive funding of the Israeli military and the role that Israeli military superiority plays in upholding U.S. empire across the region means that freeing Palestine is a core task of our struggle as Americans. And it's the same depoliticization of Palestinian nationalism that's used to undermine and marginalize Palestine solidarity work in the United States and elsewhere. Palestine solidarity activists, Palestinians themselves above all, are portrayed as being pro-terrorism or demanded to condemn Hamas, even as we are the only people in American politics advocating for the sort of political settlement that is the only hope for peace. And meanwhile, it continues to be entirely normal for people to enthusiastically support Israel even as they carry out a genocidal campaign on Gaza. A genocidal campaign that could kill most Israeli hostages and that will likely fuel more intense support for armed resistance against all Israeli settlers, soldier and civilian alike. Even as the political class expresses such close to unified support for Israel, things are changing rapidly on the ground. The American people, particularly those who make up the Democratic Party's base, are increasingly pro-Palestine. Biden and other Democrats cannot get away with this indefinitely. The people calling on you to condemn Hamas and then say nothing else are the ones who truly celebrate death. It's absolutely revolting, and it's that surreal moment of mainstream political discourse walking entirely through the looking glass. It's the evangelical Christians calling any expression of anti-Zionism a form of anti-Semitism, even as Jewish voices for peace, and if not now, take on a lead role in this struggle, even as anti-Zionism has become a signal feature of a Jewish left that is an integral part of today's American left as a whole. It's an upside-down world where the merchants of permanent warfare question our commitment to the value of human life. Before we get started, I'll keep this brief. The Dig is an important and unique political education project, and I think you probably know that. We rely overwhelmingly on voluntary listener contributions at patreon.com slash the dig to put this show out every week and to make it free with no paywall so that everyone can listen. If you can afford to contribute, please do so now. We also have an email newsletter and books, mugs, tote bags to send you depending on how much you contribute and where you live. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We depend on your support. Please make a monthly or annual contribution. I've also linked for donations to Palestinian relief in the show notes. Please contribute generously. Okay, here's Tarek Bokoni, who serves as the president of the board of Al Shabaka, the Palestinian policy network. He's the former senior analyst for Israel-Palestine and Economics of Conflict at the International Crisis Group, based in Ramallah, and the author of the book we're discussing today, Hamas contained, the rise and pacification of Palestinian resistance. Tarek Bakoni, welcome back to The Dig.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Let's start with the early history. Hamas was founded in December 1987 in Gaza's Shati refugee camp amid the mass uprisings of the first Palestinian Intifada. This was 20 years after Israel first occupied Gaza, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank. And nearly four decades after Israel's founding by Jewish settlers, the Nakba, had expelled hundreds of thousands of Palestinians beyond the borders of what became the Jewish state. What motivated Hamas's founders to establish this new organization at that particular moment? Why did they believe that an Islamist resistance organization was required to carry forward the struggle in that way at that particular juncture?
1: I think that's a really important question and it was a moment in time which was preceded by about a decade of internal reflection and thinking among Hamas's leaders. So just to give a bit of a history to getting to up to that moment in '87, The Muslim Brotherhood, which was established in Egypt in 1928, had branches in Palestine, which had been operating in Palestine since before the Nakba, so throughout the 40s and then the 50s and the 60s. And the Muslim Brotherhood has a very particular ideology, which is focused on Islamization. Essentially, it focuses on creating a society that's virtuous and that's grounded in Islam, that abides by the moral values that Islam puts forward. And it's believed in the idea that if a Palestinian society that's virtuous and that's moral is present and created, that that is the path to liberation. That rather than openly resisting the occupying force, actually all of the focus should be on Islamization. And so the Muslim Brotherhood invested a lot of time and resources developing an infrastructure of education and charity foundations and healthcare uh, outlets and, and all the forms of welfare that are grounded in Islamic values. And then throughout the 1980s, something began shifting, which is that the Palestinians under occupation specifically, so in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip began agitating against the Israeli occupying forces. And within the Gaza Strip specifically, there was a splinter group called Islamic Jihad that kind of flipped that ideology on its head. So rather than believing in Islamization as a path towards liberation, they came out and said, actually, the only way to achieve liberation is through resistance, through armed struggle. And only once we have liberation can we then focus on Islamizing society and developing this virtuous society that we're all aspiring for. And so that created some pressure within the Muslim Brotherhood chapter in the Palestinian territories uh, to begin exploring ways of more actively engaging with and resisting the occupation. So whereas in the past they were quite acquiescent and in some ways even openly depended on the occupying forces for licenses to operate, they throughout the course of the 80s began shifting to consider a more formal resistance with with the occupation. And I think this came to a head in 1987, which, as you say, was the beginning of the first Palestinian Intifada. So this was a period of mass popular resistance and civil disobedience. And at that moment, it became very clear that the idea of Islamization, this slow trend, would have to give way to something more confrontational. And the movement initially thought that it would splinter off from the Muslim Brotherhood to create Hamas, the Islamic National Resistance Movement. But what ended up happening is that Hamas emerged as a movement that subsumed its parent organization. So in some ways, its entire social infrastructure became integral to the growth of the movement as a political and military movement committed to resisting occupation.
0: Throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the Muslim Brotherhood had to navigate an Arab political scene that was dominated by deeply secular radical currents, currents like pan-Arab Nasserism, and also among Palestinians in particular, of course, Fatah, which was founded in 1959. And you write that Fatah leader Yasser Arafat, quote, challenged Nasser's vision and that of the Muslim Brotherhood. He worried about the elision of the Palestinian struggle by regional politics and about making Palestine's liberation contingent on either Arab unity, as Nasser's pan-Arabism advocated, or on the revival of a pan-Islamic virtuous society, as the Muslim Brotherhood did. And I want to just go back to this moment because we, we can't understand Hamas and its founding without understanding Fatah and the larger Palestinian Liberation Organization, or or PLO, that Fatah would come to lead. And that's because, you write, Hamas was founded, as, as we'll get into a lot soon, it was founded fundamentally as a critique of what the PLO and Fatah had become by the late 80s. But it was also founded with a sort of reverence for Fatah and the PLO as they were in their early days. Hamas was founded as a project to resurrect that uncompromising commitment to national liberation through armed struggle. But before we get back to 1987, let's, let's unpack this history. Tell us about the historical period when Fata was founded and how it was shaped by this global context of third world anti-colonial revolution, a context that I think can feel quite distant to, to many people at least in the United States today. What was their theory and practice of resistance and what and what sources did it draw from?
1: That's really important, actually, the, to understand that context and to understand how Hamas, at this moment of transition in 87, differentiated itself from pan-Arabism and from Islamization uh, and sort of tried to move away from this idea that either of those things could be allowed to unfold and unravel before Palestinians began dealing with the immediate crisis they were facing, which was occupation and the colonization of their land. And so that what Hamas did in 87 was to break away from, from those prospects. But as you say, that break had happened under secular nationalism before, under Fatah specifically, which, which then rose to, to uh, take over the PLO. And Fatah really began as an organization that is grounded in the refugee communities. So the people, the Palestinians who were ethnically cleansed out of Palestine in 1948, ended up in refugee camps around their homeland. So in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, and in Egypt. And at the time, certainly before the 67 occupation began, you know, many of those refugees were in the West Bank, in the area west of the Jordan River that was annexed by Jordan in 1951, and many others ended up in the Gaza Strip, which they, where they remain today. And that wasn't formally annexed by Egypt, but it was certainly under Egyptian control. And during that time, as you say, this was a moment of third world revolutionary mobilization. Anti-colonial movements were springing up uh, throughout Africa, and certainly in the Middle East and, and Asia. And fatah had its ideology very much grounded in that moment. So it was a moment of talking about, and this is this is fatah's basis, the ideological basis, was that it was a national resistance movement committed to the full liberation of the land of historic Palestine through armed resistance. So to undo essentially the Zionist colonization of Palestine and to return the homeland. And it was very much driven by this idea of other anti-colonial movements sort of seeking the liberation of their land. The difference is, and this is a crucial difference, is that they were outside their homeland. So unlike other anti-colonial movements that were fighting their colonizers in their homeland, the Palestinian people were dispersed and they were waging these attacks against Israel from refugee camps. And then Israel was a state, a young state that was actively fortifying its borders and beginning to uh, crack down on quote, infiltrators, so refugees who were trying to come back to their homes, uh, would be shot on site or expelled again. And so it was a situation where Fatah was rising to prominence as a, as a movement that could attack from scattered refugee communities, attack what had become an established state. And that already placed it in a very difficult position because it started launching its attacks from, host countries like Jordan and Lebanon, which threatened then those host countries with Israeli reprisals. And so it was, you know, a moment in time when Fatah was, a Fatah and not only Fatah, but other factions like uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP and the DFLP, were, were waging revolutionary armed resistance against Israel uh, from beyond the borders of the state. And I think, you know, we we all recall the moments of the plane hijackings, the moment of the fightings that would happen in Jordan and elsewhere between uh, Fida'iyin, what they were called, so Palestinians who would sacrifice their lives for the struggle, and Israeli armed forces. Now, This was a period of time that was particular. As you say, it was when anti-colonialism was on the rise and many anti-colonial movements were emerging victorious. But by the end of the 70s, early 80s, two things started happening. The first is that the commitment to armed resistance was becoming, the limitations of that commitment were becoming increasingly clear, that armed resistance of the, the... that Fatah was able to wage, or rather the PLO, so all the factions under the PLO were able to wage, the limitations of those were becoming clear. And the second is that the diplomatic, uh, the, the international community had put conditions on the PLO, that it would be allowed to enter into the fold of the diplomatic community if the PLO recognized the state of Israel and renounced armed resistance. And so this pressure was expanding on the PLO and on the Palestinian leadership. And throughout the 80s, we see internal discussions where the PLO is exploring the possibility of conceding to those demands. And so by 1987, actually 1988, the PLO comes out with a declaration recounting the independence of the state of Palestine, which essentially was a way of as it's it's a historic concession by the Palestinians. It's essentially a way of the Palestinians conceding the loss of 78% of their homeland to the land of Israel and accepting the formation of a Palestinian state on 22% of the land. And so this transformation is a transformation that Hamas then challenges. So Hamas, while the PLO is coming out of this moment of revolutionary foment and is sort of, in some ways, laying down its weapons and conceding that now diplomacy is a way forward. Hamas comes out as a movement that challenges that and says, no, actually, rather than diplomacy, we have to remain committed to armed resistance for l- full liberation, except we do so in an ideology that is Islamic, not secular.
0: Yeah, the the PLO was, was forced to renounce armed struggle and recognize Israel as a precondition for entering what became the Oslo negotiations, all in exchange for Israel conceding, if I understand this right, absolutely nothing on the right to return, the end of the occupation, the status of East Jerusalem, and and so on. How did the PLO's pacification shape Hamas around the time of its founding and in its early years? What alternate vision did Hamas propose by picking up this banner of resistance? What What was Hamas's theory of how their strategy would lead to liberation and their assessment of why the PLO had failed?
1: Through several ways. I mean, I think that the PLO's decision and concession, historic concession in 1988, which, as you say, ultimately five years from then ends up with the Oslo Accords. The concession that the PLO did was something that Hamas has learned from very deeply in different ways over the course of its years, I think in its early years, Hamas was quite naive in believing that the concession that the PLO did was one that would be impossible for the movement to do because ideologically the movement was opposed to the very notion of partition. So what it saw as a historic concession from the PLO, um, it saw that as a form of defeat of undermining the Palestinian liberation project. And it's believed naively that it would never be placed in a situation where it would also have to countenance the notion of partition. It's believed that actually Islam and its Islamic ideology would provide it with a sufficient ideological backing that it would be able to push back or, or survive against all forms of pressure that would force it into accepting partition. Um, and I have to say, I say naively because it's not because Hamas ultimately ended up accepting partition. I don't think Hamas has although it has uh, played around with the notions of partition in ways that it might not have in its early years. But I say naively because I think over the course of the years, Hamas understood that actually maintaining that position of opposing partition is a much harder commitment than it might have anticipated in its early years. And so just to go back to your question, I think what Hamas learned from the PLO's historic concession is that and, and it would learn this lesson over the years, is that actually renouncing armed resistance and accepting partition will not lead to liberation. Quite the contrary. It would lead to further defeat and further acquiescence. And that's a lesson that Hamas learned very openly over the course of the 90s, and Palestinians generally beyond Hamas, that even after they've accepted this major major concession of letting go of 78% of their lands, the international community pressured Israel into offering no concession at all. So the Israeli settlement projects continued, and Palestinians were not rewarded with their concessions with any form of self-determination. Rather, their concession was used to undermine any kind of effective Palestinian voice that could get concessions from from Israel. So the lasting lesson, I think, from the PLO for Hamas is that you cannot concede and certainly you cannot enter into any form of negotiations from a position of weakness. And we see this lesson emerging with Hamas in later years where it considers actually negotiations with Israel, but keeps saying that they will not put the gun down until the negotiations are completed. So unlike what the PLO did, which is concede and then expect some form of reward, Hamas understood actually that these parties were not negotiating in good faith and that there can be no concession from a position of weakness. It has to be concessions or negotiations from the position of armed resistance.
0: What specifically was the significance for Palestinian politics and and for the national movement of this institutional concretization of capitulation submission in the form of the Palestinian authority being fundamentally tasked with administering the occupation, particularly by carrying out so-called security coordination with Israel?
1: Well, the capitulation—so I, I should say first that it it didn't necessarily need to uh, to end up this way. When the PLO conceded the partition of Palestine— This entered the PLO into the fold of diplomatic negotiations, and there was a moment in time And I'm referring specifically to the Madrid negotiations, which happened where Palestinian negotiators were very effectively negotiating for the creation of a Palestinian state on 22% of the land of Palestine. Now, ideologically, we might be opposed to the partition of Palestine, but there was a moment in time when the PLO's concession might have produced Palestinian statehood. That was entirely upended by the Oslo Accords, because as you said before, the Oslo Accords was a moment in time when the Israeli government at the time got recognition from the PLO for the state of Israel, but it offered only the recognition of the PLO as the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. There was no articulation in the Oslo Accords around a Palestinian state around Palestinian self-determination or around the rights of refugees to return or about Israel ending its settlements building project. And that was a major defeat. So the Oslo Accords for Palestinians now, we understand, and many Palestinians understood at the time, was the full capitulation of the PLO. That was the moment Edward Said famously referred to it as the Palestinian Versailles. So this is the moment when Palestinians have been defeated. What, as you say, became institutionalized is that through the Oslo Accords, this governing entity, which is referred to as the Palestinian Authority, was created. The Palestinian Authority theoretically was meant to be the embryo of a future Palestinian state. But in reality, what it was, was essentially a bantustan. So it was an authority that was committed to governing the civilian population under its control, while operating under the overarching framework of Israeli apartheid and Israeli occupation. So it became an authority that essentially stabilized the Palestinians under occupation. And that meant a few things. Number one, it relieved Israel from having to care for the civilian population under its control. And this is in violation of international law, which states that the occupying force always has to care for the civilians under their control. Um, And so by taking on that responsibility, it relieved Israel from the responsibility of acting as an occupying force. It deluded the international community into thinking that this was the framework for a future Palestinian state, rather than for what it actually is, which is a governing authority under occupation, a sort of a a Bantustan model. But the third, and which is perhaps the most important, is that it then shifted the Palestinian liberation struggle from a struggle that calls on and accounts for Palestinians as a people in their entirety. So Palestinian refugees, Palestinians in the diaspora, Palestinian citizens of Israel, rather than the Palestinian Liberation Project being a project that is acting on behalf of Palestinians as a people, the Palestinian Authority became an authority that's speaking on behalf of the Palestinian constituency that's under occupation. And so over the course of the years of its operation, we see the PLO, which is the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people, this anti-colonial liberation movement that at the height of its day was calling for the full liberation of Palestine, that becomes subsumed into an authority that is governing a small segment of Palestinians under Israeli control and even more committed to Israeli security through security coordination. And so it further it ends up further fragmenting the Palestinian people and really undermining their liberation project and turning it into really just a, a governance project under apartheid. In
0: 1994, seven years before Hamas would launch its first rocket into Israel, they launched its first suicide bombing, killing seven Israelis. How and why did this tactic emerge when it did, just after the PLO had signed the Oslo Accords? At the time, you write that suicide bombings were opposed by the Palestinian public, and in Israel, they were exploited by Netanyahu, who successfully became prime minister for the first time in 1996. Hamas could always retort, of course, that, Alternative strategies have also failed, and they would be proven right that Oslo, for example, would just end up being a reconfigured system of Israeli control. Why why suicide bombing, and what was Hamas's vision for armed struggle, including the targeting of Israeli civilians? And, and how did that vision relate and compare to or, or also depart from this longer history of armed struggle in what had until then been a secular-led national liberation movement?
1: So I think in the context of Hamas specifically launching into armed struggle, there's a fundamental difference from the PLO launching its attacks from around Israel in that in the case of the PLO, most of the combatants that they ended up engaging with in their armed resistance were military officials by virtue of the fact that they didn't necessarily have access to Israeli Jewish civilians because they were outside the borders of the state. But even in the history of the PLO, there were attacks against Jewish civilians, not necessarily Israeli, in 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 the hijackings and in, in other contexts. But the discourse had always been that this is a process or a policy that is adopted in order to put pressure on Israel and members of the international community to not ignore the question of Palestine. And we might have our own thoughts about the morality of the struggles, of the PLO and the way they targeted, let's say, plane hijackings or, or massacres, also elsewhere. But strategically and in terms of tactics, they ended up placing the Palestinian question in the center stage of the international agenda. So, in, in that way, it worked. And the way it didn't work is that then it became associated with terrorism rather than the key demands of the Palestinian people. So this is the back context in which Hamas emerges as a movement that's committed to liberation. The, the transition that Hamas undergoes from being this social, socially focused movement to being an armed resistance movement, that transition at the beginning is, at, is takes the form of attacking specifically Army officials. So so they kidnap two Israeli army officials into the Gaza Strip and, and they're murdered. And that signals the beginning of Hamas's, that signals to the Israeli authorities the beginning of Hamas's shift into armed resistance. Now, the tactic of suicide bombing specifically was something that was learned from Hezbollah, actually. The movement in 1994, a big contingent of the movement, because of its increasing resistance against Israel's occupation, the Israeli government at the time rounded up hundreds of Hamas officials and members of the movement and uh, deported them to Lebanon, to an area called Marj Zuhur. And essentially, it's a forced transfer of Palestinians under Israeli rule outside the boundaries of the state. And that was something that backfired massively, because rather than uh, deporting Hamas and then thinking that they would be, you know, out of sight, out of mind, it placed the spotlight on the Palestinian predicament and allowed Hamas to actually begin organizing and engaging with Hezbollah. And so that's where the movement first became exposed to the tactic of suicide bombing. Now, the, when the movement adopted that tactic in the 90s, it was focused on one thing. It was focused on undermining the negotiations that were taking part in the as part of the Oslo discussions, because it believed, rightly, that those negotiations would not advance Palestinian rights that they would actually advance Palestinian defeats. And so the the use of suicide bombings was very specifically used as a force to undermine the negotiations and to sort of embarrass a PLO that was negotiating from a position of having, quote-unquote, secured the Palestinian territories and, and enabled the safety of the Israeli Jews, and to sort of put pressure on the Israeli government to, in some ways move away from negotiations. Uh, So it was very much a spoiler tactic. And it wasn't a tactic that was straightforward. So there were huge moral and strategic questions uh, internally within the movement around whether or not they should adopt this this policy. Uh, But in retrospect, it was a policy, again, the ethics aside, it was a policy that succeeded actually in undermining the negotiations. And it's very difficult. It's a counterfactual. It's very difficult to say whether the negotiations would have produced a Palestinian state without suicide bombings. I personally don't think so. I think the Israeli government was committed to expanding its settlement project regardless. And we now understand Oslo to be a project aimed at securing Palestinian autonomy, not statehood. But nonetheless, at the time, the suicide bombings played a huge role in undermining negotiations.
0: Let's Let's turn to the Second Intifada, which erupted in 2000 after Ariel Sharon, the Likud leader who would soon become Israel's right-wing prime minister, made a really provocative visit to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. This was after Arafat had, at Camp David, rejected profoundly insufficient Israeli proposals. And this was — Camp David was a U.S.-backed summit attempting to revive an Oslo process that had clearly failed you write that, quote, Hamas rapidly became the central instigator of armed operations against Israel, practicing what it called a balance of terror strategy carried out through the tactic of a massive suicide bombing campaign. This was also, however, the first period when Hamas fired its rockets from Gaza. How did Hamas react to the new uprising? And how did the Second Intifada shape the larger Palestinian national movement and Hamas's place within it?
1: So the Second Intifada emerged from a period of despair, actually, for Palestinians. So here we have about 10 years in which Palestinians and the Palestinian leadership, having done everything in their power to accept and recognize the state of Israel and to try to secure the occupied Palestinian territories. Meanwhile, the state of Israel is expanding its settlement project and further entrenching its occupation. And the deadline for establishing a Palestinian state comes and goes. And we have in Camp David, as you say, this final effort led by the U.S. to try to have an all-out agreement where all the issues, all the final, what they call the final status issues would be on the table. And these two leaders at the time, Ehud Barak and uh, Yasser Arafat would agree on everything. And then we just have a Palestinian state. And it is a moment in time when even push comes to shove, This final, in the 11th hour, we see the maximum offer that the Israelis are able to put on the table, and it is far, far short of the minimum demands of the Palestinian people, that it becomes clear that all of the negotiations had actually been completely futile. And really for for Israel and for its patron, the U.S., just a way of managing the occupation and of really not placing any form of accountability on Israel for its violations of international law. And so when that becomes apparent, it's a, it leads to a huge rupture among the Palestinian population and this you know provoked by sharon's visit to al-aqsa becomes this uh, moment where palestinians rise again in through civil disobedience and popular uprising throughout the occupied territories in ways that were actually very similar to the first intifada. The major difference here is that in the first intifada at the time when it was sort of popular and civil disobedience, uh, Rabin at the time famously called on Israel's army to break the bones of all the protesters. So that was the way that they talked about trying to control the protests. In the Second Intifada, it wasn't breaking bones. It was using live fire. So very quickly from the first day of the Palestinians beginning to rise up, Israel used significant force, uh, hundreds of thousands of bullets against unarmed civilians that were rising up throughout the territory. So unlike the First Intifada, the Second Intifada militarized very quickly. And it was the collapse of any idea, at least as far as Hamas was concerned, that negotiations were the way forward. And so the movement very quickly mobilized to try to co-opt that moment. In some ways, there was jubilation that the track of the negotiations had failed. And the movement very quickly moved to try to make sure that there would be no effort to return to a negotiations track. Their policy was, now that negotiations have failed, we have to try another strategy. And so Hamas wasn't the only party that was committed to armed resistance. Fatah Tanzim and others also themselves resorted to armed resistance again. But Hamas, Hamas in some ways, led the resistance activities. Now, over the course of the 90s, it had suffered significantly as a movement because through security coordination, a lot of its infrastructure was dismantled. Uh, But in the early months of the Second Intifada, it was very quickly able to mobilize. And it committed to what it called the Balance of Terror campaign. Now, this campaign had a very clear goal. It believed that through a war of attrition, it could force Israel to back off and to end its occupation. The movement believed that if it sufficiently terrorized Israeli civilians, those civilians would call on their governments, to pull back from the occupation. So it was a message counterintuitively of saying, you know, now you're being, you're facing suicide bombing campaigns through your streets. You want security and the occupation. That was the kind of, that was the message that it was putting forward. And in some ways it was, uh, it was essentially a war of attrition. So whenever Israel would invade the occupied territories or or deal with Palestinian resistance with heavy handedness. Hamas would launch suicide bombers into Israeli streets. So it was looking to build deterrence with the Israeli military and try to get to a place where Israel essentially could, be, could see that the cost of the occupation wasn't worth having. That was in the early days of the Second Intifada, and it quickly backfired for for various reasons, Uh, the most important of which is that this was unfolding at a time after the 9-11 attacks against the U.S., which meant that the war on terror doctrine was in full swing and the Israeli authorities were able to convince the American administration at the time, the Bush administration, that the Second Intifada was akin to Israel's 9-11.
0: And that any Palestinian resistance, particularly but not exclusively Hamas, was was part and parcel of the same Islamic terrorism that the U.S. was in a self-described existential war against.
1: Precisely. And so what that meant is that the Israeli uh, regime had essentially a carte blanche to act with disproportionate force against the Palestinians. And so rather than the suicide bombings creating a dynamic where Israel would pull back from the territories, it actually created a dynamic of re-entrenchment in some ways. So we see the biggest invasions of the refugee camps the so Jenin refugee camp and other refugee camps throughout the West Bank. Israel uses its full military force to come back into the occupied territories that had ostensibly that it had ostensibly relinquished to become part of the Palestinian authority. It reinvades all of these territories and crushes all forms of Palestinian resistance. And so we see over the course of that transition, Hamas's demands change. Rather than using a balance of terror strategy of, of relying on suicide bombings to push Israel to relinquish its occupation, Hamas actually changes its tactics and begins calling for alternative means of of engaging with Israeli force and with the Israeli authorities. So it begins to focus specifically on the occupied territories. It attacks settlers rather than suicide bombers inside 48 or uh, Israel. And it starts shifting its tactics to explore other forms of resistance, including political and diplomatic resistance
0: as you describe it, it it accomplished Hamas's attacks, accomplished not deterrence, which is what they wanted, but, but the opposite, more and more brutal Israeli reprisals that reached this new height with the invasion of refugee camps and all the other attacks that made up Operation Defensive Shield in 2002. But of course, it would be easier to argue that the movement should try other methods if Israel allowed any of those methods to work. But in fact, and this will be a consistent theme throughout the story that we're telling and throughout this interview, Israel, with U.S. support, is committed to demonstrating that no method will work and that the only option is capitulation.
1: So it, so Hamas, you're absolutely right, is unable to build sufficient deterrence or anything that might quell Israel's reinvasion and occupation. But what it does do is that it instills a certain degree of power that Palestinians do not have. So not effective deterrence, but it certainly becomes a question mark for Israeli authorities around what uh, and how they can deal with the Palestinian issue. So we see several things happening at the end of the Second Intifada, including Sharon's decision at the time to quote-unquote disengage from the Gaza Strip. So this is something where, We're still seeing the effects of that today uh, in the war in 2023, but where the Israeli authorities begin to understand that actually it is too costly for them to maintain settlements in the Gaza Strip, and they need to restructure the form of their occupation in order to focus specifically on the West Bank and maintain the Gaza Strip as a separate entity, which they begin to put under blockade in, in 2005. But for Hamas specifically, The commitment to armed resistance, as you say, that begins to fracture and they begin to understand that maybe there are other forms of engagement, political or diplomatic engagement, in order to secure Palestinian rights. However, they also understand that those forms of engagement, those avenues of engagement, had not in the past succeeded, that Israel had quelled all forms of Palestinian participation that isn't armed resistance. And the example that Hamas had to date was the PLO and the fact that the PLO had conceded and put down the gun and entered into 10 years of negotiations to end up in a situation where the Israeli army was more entrenched in the occupied territories than ever before. And so so Hamas then begins to explore prospects for political engagement without putting down the gun.
0: Yeah, they could point to the PLO's failure to achieve... Palestinian liberation through negotiations and they could also see that Israel was perfectly happy to mow down unarmed protesters in giant numbers during the second intifada and and even then during the second intifada you write Hamas made it clear that it would agree that it would agree to a ceasefire if Israel ended the occupation a move that would mean respecting 1967 borders you write quote The view mirrored the PLO's steadfast dedication to armed struggle in the 1960s and 1970s. Unlike the PLO's early days, however, Hamas had already limited its immediate military goal to the liberation of the occupied territories rather than the entirety of the land of historic Palestine. And you write throughout the book that, in fact, Hamas has asserted multiple times over the years that it would accept a negotiated settlement that resulted in a two-state solution on 1967 borders, a concession, again, of 78% of historic Palestine's territory. And I just think it's very important before we move on with this history that it's very important to emphasize that it has been Israel and the United States that have consistently been the rejectionist parties. Indeed, many Israeli political leaders oppose any sort of Palestinian state. They even deny that Palestinians exist as a people. And yet it is Palestinians, including Hamas, Hamas, which in this sense was actually less, significantly less maximalist in its aim than the PLO was during its heyday. It was the Palestinians and Hamas that have been portrayed as the intransient party who won't negotiate.
1: I think that's really important because the transition that happened in the Second Intifada, and this goes back to the point I was making earlier about Hamas being naive in terms of believing in their early years that armed resistance could achieve full liberation. The strength of the Israeli attack against the Palestinians in the Second Intifada revealed to Hamas the limits of its armed resistance. And it became very clear to the movement that full liberation, at least in the current iteration, was not possible. That was out of bounds. And so over the course of the five years of the Second Intifada, we see Hamas very, very actively and openly putting forward political interventions to try to limit civilian deaths and to try to abide by the expectations of the international community that Palestine would be restricted to the occupied Palestinian territories. So they would offer hudnas or ceasefires to the Israeli authorities. They would say, we will pull back all of our fighters if you dismantle the occupation. And then even in their armed resistance, they would limit that resistance to the settlers in the occupied territories, to not to Israeli Jewish civilians within the boundaries of 48, but to settlers who are illegally occupying settlements in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. And they, in doing that, the movement implicitly and not so implicitly, in some cases explicitly, talks about the creation of a Palestinian state on 67, which is ostensibly the demand of the Israeli authorities and the international community that there would be a two-state solution. And yet, rather than engage with Hamas, rather than try to limit the civilian deaths that were happening on the ground and engage with Hamas Politically, there's every effort to continue to demonize Hamas as an irrational party that is not putting forward any workable solutions, and to reinforce the narrative that the only way of dealing with Hamas or Palestinians more broadly is militarily. And the echoes of that go both back historically and into the future. So historically, the Israelis have always tried to depoliticize the Palestinian movements, even the PLO in Lebanon, presenting them as nothing but terrorists and in some ways totally undermine the political project of the PLO in Lebanon, which they used to justify their invasion of Beirut in 1982. And then fast forward to today, and you see Israeli officials talking about decimating Hamas when Hamas is essentially still putting forward political demands that are valid under international law. Uh, But rather than dealing with Hamas politically or engaging with its political projects, we see a successive effort to paint Hamas specifically, but Palestinians more broadly, as terrorists in whatever avenue they choose to take to pursue their rights.
0: As you referenced a few minutes ago, by, by the end of the Second Intifada, Ariel Sharon was moving to impose a radically reconfigured system of control on Palestinians, including this apartheid wall that that unilaterally seized more than 10% of land in the West Bank and, very consequentially, the 2005 so-called disengagement from Gaza, which involved Israel pulling back 8,000 settlers who had controlled 30% of land on the Strip. Hamas, on the one hand, saw and framed this disengagement as a victory for resistance, but you write that they also saw it as part of a, quote, strategy aimed at the annexation of the West Bank, offsetting Gaza's demographic challenge and undermining the chances of a Palestinian state within the 1967 borders. And obviously, disengagement did not mean the end of the occupation, but the beginning of the occupation as blockade. Was the disengagement a victory for armed resistance or a tactic to facilitate a new system of control? Or was it contradictorily both of those things?
1: It was precisely both of those things. So for Hamas, the movement actually relied on what it called the Hezbollah model, which is the model of resistance that Hezbollah carried out against Israelis which ultimately resulted in Israel relinquishing its control and occupation of southern Lebanon so Hamas saw Israel's pulling out of 8000 settlers from the Gaza strip as a victory in that sense that it that it was clear that the state was incapable of tolerating the cost of maintaining that settlement and and We should be clear, these are 8,000 settlers controlling 30% of the land and 2 million Palestinians in the remaining 70%. So the scale of confinement of Palestinians to make room for Jewish settlers was extreme in the Gaza Strip. Those 8,000 settlers were in the most fertile lands, enjoying uh, extensive infrastructure connected directly to Israel, you know, with pools and lawns and, you know, a European suburban life with, with 2 million Palestinians living around them in refugee camps with no infrastructure and no ability to move in the the starkest forms of apartheid. And so when the settlers were pulled out and Israel's occupying structure changed so that, as you say, rather than maintaining the occupation from within by protecting settlers, it reconfigures itself to maintaining a blockade on the Gaza Strip from the outside, Hamas is under no illusion that the occupation has ended. So they see it as a victory that they forced Israel to sort of remove their settlers, but they're under no illusion that the occupation has ended. But in some ways, and actually I wouldn't have been able to say this with as much certainty three weeks ago, but in some ways, what we saw on October 7th of 2023 is the result of Hamas being able to deal with that strip of land, as quote-unquote liberated territory. So that even though the blockade obviously meant that the Palestinians there were still under occupation, but within the Gaza Strip, Hamas had relative autonomy in a way that the Palestinians in the West Bank do not, because the Israeli army invades the West Bank day in, day out. It carries out raids, it terrorizes civilians, it dismantles all forms of organizing. So that still happens in the West Bank. It doesn't in the Gaza Strip. And so in that way, the Gaza Strip was a space where Hamas could focus on developing its infrastructure and its its political and social and, and military projects in a way that enabled it to carry the offensive it did in, in October 2023.
0: I want to go over the... The, the period during the disengagement, leading up to Hamas taking full control of the Gaza Strip, in in 2005, Hamas entered the electoral arena for the first time ever, contesting for power in the Palestinian Authority. First in municipal elections, and then in 2006, winning a majority in legislative elections. But you write that what Hamas really wanted was to reform the PLO rather. Than to run a palestinian authority that it rightly saw as a tool for administering the occupation what what did hamas seek out of reforming the plo and why if that was their larger goal and they did see the pa as fundamentally compromised why did they decide to nonetheless enter elections
1: that's a very important question and i think that it's one that hamas has internally really grappled with and i'm not sure that they really got to a good enough answer. So let me just lay out a few things. First of all, the PLO is the sole representative of the Palestinian people. So that's what the Palestinians got out of the Oslo Accords. Hamas and Islamic Jihad have always been marginalized from the PLO. So there was every effort to make sure that these parties do not enter into the PLO. So the movement historically has always rebelled against that and believed that it garners or that it enjoys enough legitimacy within the Palestinian people to be a part of this umbrella organization that brings together all the Palestinian factions fighting for liberation. And part of the reason that it's been marginalized from the PLO is because the PLO uh, in as as we said in 1988 and then through the Oslo accords recognized the state of Israel and accepted the the Oslo framework and Hamas is against these uh, agreements and so entry of Hamas into the PLO would mean that the PLO would have to grapple with this that historic concession that it had done to date and it's been unwilling to do that and so In 2005, 2006, when the elections were being pushed onto the Palestinian people, so we have to understand this within the context of the war on terror, there's this effort to create quote-unquote a democratic Palestinian leadership by the Bush administration. So they're pushing forward for elections after many of the top Palestinian leaders are assassinated or die. And we have this moment in time where the Americans are pushing for elections within the Palestinian Authority. Now, Hamas comes out and says the Palestinian Authority is illegitimate, the Oslo Accords have failed. We cannot think of the Palestinian authorities through the framework of the Oslo Accords. So if we run in these elections, we're running in these elections in a post-Second Intifada moment where the Palestinians are looking to rebuild their political project after this crushing violence that has been used against the Palestinians after the restructuring of the occupation. After the death of many Palestinian leaders, including Yasser Arafat and Sheikh Ahmed Yassin and others. In this sort of moment post Second Intifada, this is a moment of rebirth, and we need to reconstitute the Palestinian project. And so Hamas, rightly or wrongly, believed that it could enter into the Palestinian Authority and using that foothold, revolutionize the Palestinian political establishment. So use the foothold of the PA to really then enter into the PLO and request or open up to debate all the fundamental tenets that the PLO had accepted by then, which included recognizing the State of Israel. The movement was convinced that there were no negotiations possible post-Second Intifada, given where the Palestinian political project had gotten to. However... The flip side to that is that that's not where Israel or the PLO or the international community were at. They believed that the Palestinian political project had been sufficiently decimated that it is precisely the time when we reinforce the idea of the Palestinian Authority and restart negotiations with Palestinians on a weaker footing. And so Hamas ends up, there's an incompatibility of expectations. Hamas runs into the elections and it wins. And this immediately starts a chain reaction of several events. The first is that... So this is a movement that is democratically elected in elections that are pushed for by the EU and the US and in democratic elections that are seen to be fair by international observers.
0: Including by Jimmy Carter, who's there.
1: Including by Jimmy Carter and other EU officials who say these are fair elections. Hamas wins democratically. So this is what Palestinian democracy produces. And again... I I should be clear, these are Palestinians under occupation. So Palestinian refugees and in the diaspora, Palestinian citizens of Israel are not voting. But this is who the Palestinians choose in 2006 for various reasons. And the response of the international community is to initiate efforts to result in a regime change. So to begin preparations for a coup to undermine the elected party, and to reinstate Fatah, which is the party that is committed to negotiations under Israeli apartheid. And and these preparations take the form of financial support, military support, and diplomatic support against Hamas in support of Fatah. And so we have about a year where Hamas tries to overcome that attempted coup and to try to create a Palestinian authority That is united, that even brings Fatah into the governing body to try to create a Palestinian authority that accepts international demands, recognizes a Palestinian state on 67, accepts partition in some ways, and and it puts forward major concessions. And instead of any of those being dealt with, the international community, through what it calls the quartet conditions, puts forward the same conditions it had put on the PLO before it. You must renounce armed resistance, recognize the state of Israel, and accept the Oslo Accords. When these conditions are not conditions that are employed or accepted by Israel, which is still using armed force against civilians, which has undermined Oslo and continues to expand its settlements. So it's really an effort to try to marginalize Hamas. And it works. It facilitates a civil war between Hamas and Fatah and results in a situation where Hamas then takes over the Gaza Strip and Fatah becomes the governing authority in the West Bank. And this is where we see the institutional and political division within the Palestinian territories begin to take hold.
0: Hi, this is Olufemi Otiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Light in Gaza, Writings Born of Fire, edited by Jahada Salim, Jennifer Bing, and Mike merriman Loates. Gaza has perhaps never been the focus of so much international attention, and yet so much of what is said about the people who live there is meant only to demonize and dehumanize them. In this context, the invaluable contribution of light in Gaza, writings born of fire, is more crucial than ever. This distinctive, moving, and wide-ranging anthology of writers and artists imagines what the future of Gaza could be, while reaffirming the critical role of Gaza in Palestinian identity, history, and struggle for liberation. As Ali Abu Nima says of the book, This brilliant, funny, inspiring collection of stories and essays by writers in Gaza was exactly what I needed to reinvigorate my hope and determination to work for a future that uplifts us all. Find Light in Gaza at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the US and UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 and 20 pounds, respectively. Before we get deeper into that split and how Hamas rule in Gaza developed, how did Hamas win those elections? Did they win voters did they win voters over because of their resistance to Israel, or was it more on good government grounds and their relentless criticism of of fatah's corruption or or was it both in a way that is maybe interrelated and then and then how did hamas envision doing politics in a way that included governance and resistance
1: so i think that there have there has been a lot of speculation around how hamas won those elections and i think one of the lines that we often hear is that it won as a protest vote against fatah Which So to give context, Fatah at this time had lost a lot of legitimacy, not only because it is committed to negotiations that are clearly going nowhere, but also because its leadership is increasingly corrupt and not speaking on behalf of what the Palestinians want. So it's very much a a party that is past its heyday and living on former glory. But it's one that is now misaligned with Palestinians. So many people articulated or explained Hamas's election victory as a protest vote against Fatah. I think that minimizes what actually happened. Uh, Hamas put forward a very coherent and astute political program, which focused on cleaning up the Palestinian Authority. So it advocated reform. It pushed back against corruption. It focused on the needs of the Palestinians under occupation. So, in that sense, it really connected with the Palestinians living in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. But also, Hamas's resistance is something that Palestinians support. So, they might have ideological differences in that not all Palestinians are Islamist, obviously. And they might have tactical differences in that not all Palestinians support targeting civilians. But the idea of a resistance force that's dealing with Israel through force is something that Palestinians appreciate because it's seen as a form of defense against aggressive colonial violence. The idea of security coordination and acquiescence for Palestinians means accepting a situation where Palestinian civilians are killed day in, day out with no, no pushback or no form of protection or no cost to Israeli Jewish Citizens. So Hamas's resistance project then and now is still seen as something that Palestinians admire and appreciate because it protects them from Israeli force. And so all of these factors coalesced at a moment of deep disgust with the Palestinian Authority, with its corruption, looking at Hamas as a new political project that's talking about cleaner governance, that's also focused on protecting. Palestinians from Israeli aggression, all of these factors together meant that Hamas had a very solid standing in the elections, and I should say, was far more effective at mobilizing and organizing than than Fatah was uh, in the lead up to the elections. But in terms of the second part of your question around governance, look, I think Hamas was deeply ambivalent, about governance. I don't think Hamas wanted to emerge as a governing authority. In some ways, the election victory was a surprise even for Hamas. I think what the movement wanted to do was to reconstitute the whole idea of governance and move it away from administration under occupation into resistance, into how do you mobilize people under occupation to move away from imagining they have a good life and to begin focusing on resisting the occupation. That was their idea of governance. And in some ways, this is what we see in the Gaza Strip in in the space that they did actually govern in for the past fifteen years. So I, I think that the idea of governance as we might understand it, you know, caring for a population under occupation was not necessarily something that Hamas was after of course it was looking to provide that welfare structure for civilians but it was really more importantly looking at using that space to push forward a political project that's aimed at undoing the occupation
0: and and you mentioned this a few moments back but this leads to this really interesting tension from 2007 until until a few weeks ago on on the one hand gaza was a blockaded open air prison camp subjected Subjected to recurrent, one sidedly, extremely lethal military campaigns from Israel. But on the other hand, everyday life on the street was free of Israeli soldiers and governance in a way that is not true and has not been true in the West Bank. And you write, quote, In matters of life and death, Israel's occupation grinds on relentlessly in the form of an external structure of control on a besieged population. But within this prison cell, Gazans have staked their flag.
1: I think that's exactly right. And I think that what Hamas does over the course of the, those 16 years is to really build an infrastructure and a mode of governance inside Gaza, which allows the population to withstand the siege and the blockade. But also we see over the course of many years, it begins a process whereby Palestinian resistance actually becomes increasingly effective. Um, And effective here, we should be careful not to suggest that it's effective in the sense that it's actually threatening Israel, but effective in the sense that it is forcing Israel to offer certain concessions. So it is rebuilding forms of deterrence with the Israeli military. So In the Gaza Strip, Hamas emerges as this governing entity under blockade, and we see what I call in the book a violent equilibrium begin to take shape. What this means is that the two entities, Hamas and Israel, have different expectations. What Israel is looking for is what it calls calm for its civilians. So it's basically saying we need the... Israelis around the Gaza Strip and elsewhere to live in relative calm. So the Gaza Strip and Hamas should present no disruption or disturbance. Hamas, on the other hand, is under a violent blockade. This is a blockade that is a form of collective punishment on 2.3 million Palestinians. And that
0: Israel intentionally wants to maintain at just above the level, just above the level of humanitarian catastrophe.
1: Right. So this is a policy that Israeli officials put forward in the early years of the blockade to make sure that they are able to count the calories of food going into the Gaza Strip so that the Gaza Strip doesn't sink into a humanitarian catastrophe, but is also unable to survive, as unable to thrive or live. And so the violence of that blockade, obviously Hamas and the Palestinians in Gaza are withstanding, and they are obviously and understandably, against the idea that Israelis can have calm while the violence of this blockade is ongoing. So whereas Israel expects calm while the blockade persists, Palestinians in Gaza are saying, you want calm, the blockade needs to be lifted. And so what we see is every few years, or really every few months, a situation occurs where Hamas fires rockets at Israel, when the restrictions of the blockade become too stifling, and essentially force an escalation where a ceasefire is eventually negotiated, and Israel is forced to ease restrictions into the blockade. So that's the violent equilibrium I'm referring to. The problem with this exchange is that the minute the international gaze is averted, the tenants of the ceasefire or the demands of the ceasefire aren't met. Israeli restrictions Are reimposed. And the Gaza Strip, which would have, over the course of the escalation, suffered hundreds, if not thousands, of civilian casualties and destroyed infrastructure is left without the capacity to rebuild or to to, uh, enjoy eased restrictions. And so that blockade is in place for a while. And I should mention that for, for Israel, and this is quite important, Hamas is the perfect excuse for the blockade in the sense that Hamas presents the Israeli authorities with justification for why the blockade is instituted in the first place. So in the eyes of the international community, the blockade is put in place to protect Israelis. It's a security measure against Hamas's rise. What's missed in this equation is the reality that actually the issue here isn't Hamas. It's the fact that there are 2 million Palestinians in Gaza at about 80% of them looking to return to lands in what is now Israel. And to un- undo this demographic problem and maintain Israel as a Jewish state, Israel since 1948 has experimented with different ways of severing the Gaza Strip or pacifying the Gaza Strip. With Hamas's rise and takeover of the Gaza Strip, it becomes a perfect fig leaf, the perfect excuse for for why the blockade then makes sense. And so we enter into a situation where Israeli officials actually not only tolerate, but enable Hamas to remain as the governing entity in the Gaza Strip while they employ a military doctrine called mowing the lawn.
0: We should pause here in the, the history to talk about where Hamas fits into the regional geopolitical order. Now that we're past that point in the history where it's become a governing power in Gaza. Traditionally, Hamas has depended upon Iran and Syria for support and on Hezbollah as a powerful military ally on Israel's northern border. At least that was the dynamic until the so-called Arab Spring complicated things. How did support for and opposition to Hamas fit into regional geopolitics from the late 1980s till protests-filled Cairo's Tahrir Square? And then how did those massive anti-regime protests across the Arab world, which, among other things, briefly brought their Muslim Brotherhood allies to power in Cairo, how did that all change the geopolitical dynamics for Hamas?
1: So Hamas had always understood that and not only Hamas, the PLO before it also understood that as a poorly resourced organization and people, that the Palestinians needed to rely on patrons in the region to provide them with financial, military and diplomatic support. And Hamas was actually very good at securing that support from different So it had engaged in conversations with Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Lebanon and Jordan and Syria and Iran, Qatar, Turkey over the course of its life. And it would always have ebbs and flows and often play some of these patrons against each other. But what it was always very good at was making sure that its project never expands beyond what its immediate goals are, which are the liberation of the land of Palestine. So in other words, it wasn't ever, as far as I know, co-opted to act as a proxy for regional patrons in other wars. It's always committed and always has been committed and able to maintain its focus on the land of historic Palestine. Now, in the past, a lot of this support was not as great as it would become after Hamas's election victory and its rise to a governing authority in the Gaza Strip. Because at that moment, its finances became extremely stretched thin. Suddenly, it was responsible for two million Palestinians. Now, the majority of that welfare still came through international donations, so from UNRWA, for example, that cares for Palestinian refugees and other international bodies. But the movement still needed a significant amount of funding to come in. And at the time, Hamas's political bureau, so this is the part of the movement that is not directly linked to its military, but rather its broader political wing, was housed in in various places abroad, uh, including in Syria. Now, And the movement was receiving support from Iran, financial support, and from other powers in the region. It had good relations with Saudi Arabia as well, with Turkey and elsewhere. Things really began changing and it became quite tumultuous for the movement after the revolutions began in the Middle East. Two things really were quite major. The first is that Hamas In the early days of the revolutions, Hamas always thinks of itself as a movement that is very connected to the people because of its social infrastructure, because of its welfare programs. That's historically the Muslim Brotherhood. And so very quickly in the early days of the revolutions, it aligned itself with the Syrian people against the Assad regime which created a major fissure. Its political wing, which was based in Damascus, was kicked out of Syria. And the funding, which it was getting from Iran, which of course is an ally of the Assad regime, uh, was ab- abruptly ended uh, at a moment in time when Hamas was a governing authority. And so it was kicked out. It relocated this political bureau to Qatar and started negotiating other forms of funding. So that was the one of the big... Uh, changes that happened after the revolutions began. And the other was in the early days and years of the revolution, as you say, we saw the Muslim Brotherhood come to power, specifically in Egypt. We saw Morsi democratically elected after Mubarak's fall. And the movement very quickly jumped on that bandwagon. It's believed that this was the time of now uh, Islamic Renaissance. This is the time when the Muslim Brotherhood would come back to power and very openly embraced see and imagine that now its fortunes in the Gaza Strip would be reversed, and obviously that wasn't the case.
0: And just briefly, we should emphasize we should emphasize here that this is very practically important for Gaza because what and for Hamas, cause what we haven't mentioned yet is but that most listeners no doubt know is that Egypt is fundamentally complicit in the blockade by keeping the Rafah crossing closed or or, or close to closed.
1: Absolutely. I think the politics around Rafah are complex. So when the blockade was instituted, really Hamas, the, the effect was to try to strangle Hamas entirely. And the movement at the time invested a lot of resources to dig tunnels from the Gaza Strip into the Sinai Peninsula under, under Rafah. And those tunnels became a lifeline for the movement. Under Mubarak, Mubarak was complicit, as you say, with the Israeli regime in terms of instituting the blockade against the Gaza Strip. But he turned a blind eye to the tunnels. So under the Mubarak years, Hamas was still able to get some inflow of goods and people through tunnels under the Rafah border. When Morsi came to power, that obviously changed quite drastically. And the tunnels, and not only the tunnels, the Rafah border itself became much more permeable. The blockade was in some ways eased. And the complicity of the Egyptian regime with Israel around the Gaza Strip was undermined, which is why there was such jubilation among Palestinians in Gaza. At the time, you saw Morsi's poster everywhere in the Gaza Strip, and there was this belief that now, the idea that Palestinians would remain under blockade was fundamentally challenged, and that they would have an Arab regional patron that is against Israeli apartheid and against the blockade. But the swift turn of events in Egypt really brought that to an end. And actually, when Sisi came to power, one of the first things he did was to crack down on all of the tunnels, to raise a lot of the areas around Rafah, and to reinforce the blockade, which is where we're at today, the Sisi regime being actively complicit in, in the blockade.
0: And for Sisi to accuse Hamas of basically nurturing Salafist militants operating in the Sinai, which is so... Off base on so many levels. I mean, we haven't talked about this much, but Hamas is is theologically and ideologically opposed to the sort of anti-national, more nihilistic Salafism, you know, exemplified by Al-Qaeda or 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 the Islamic State, and in fact has repeatedly cracked down and repressed Salafists operating in Gaza and and propagandized against against their theology.
1: Absolutely, and the movement is actually very strict on that. It does not tolerate any form of ideologies that are committed to violence for the sake of violence or the transnational violence that we see in organizations like ISIS or otherwise, and very actively polices against and cracks down on any kind of Salafi networks in uh, the Gaza Strip, and has actually in the past engaged with educational programs to try to steer the younger population uh, that are open to uh, virtual networks or that kind of propaganda on their virtual devices away from that uh, and the movement as 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 the Muslim brotherhood more generally uh, is not i mean the the conflation of the Muslim brotherhood with those organizations is sinister and it's done with a very particular political agenda which is to frame all political demands uh, certainly, by Islamic parties as a form of transnational terror, and the Sisi regime unfortunately jumps on that bandwagon. Following the coup that brings down uh, the Morsi government, and jumps on the bandwagon of deterritorialized uh, Islamic terrorism, quote unquote, uh, and accuses Hamas very actively of fomenting that unrest in the Sinai Peninsula, and uses that as justification for blocking the strip again.
0: By 2014, you write that Hamas was actively, quote, seeking to offload its governing responsibilities. Why did Hamas want out of governing Gaza? And why was Israel so determined to make sure that didn't happen? And I want to emphasize Israel was determined to make sure that didn't happen because we're sitting here doing this interview while Israel is preparing to launch an expected ground invasion to overthrow the Hamas government of Gaza?
1: So Israel at the time didn't want that to happen for the simple reason that it wanted a governing entity to stabilize the Gaza Strip and take over and and absolve it of the responsibility of caring for 2 million Palestinians under its occupation. And it's believed very strongly that it had sufficiently contained Hamas. And that's the title of my book, that it sort of sufficiently managed to restrict Hamas and Hamas's reach to the Gaza Strip. And it made the calculus that a few rockets every few months was worth the price of maintaining Gaza under blockade and stabilizing it under the Gaza Strip. And that was something that it could administer and tolerate relatively easily. And so it wanted to make sure that Hamas stays in power as the governing authority. As you say, it's funny to fast forward to 2023 and now the Israeli discourse is that Hamas has always been ISIS and needs to be destroyed. And the difference is, of course, between that Hamas and this Hamas, there's no difference. But in the Israeli political uh, sphere, the difference is that that Hamas was not as strong in its resistance or as explicit in its resistance than Hamas post-October 7th. And the issue here is resistance. The issue here is that Palestinians have no right to resist. But to go back to this idea, so Israel wanted to maintain Hamas as the governing authority. So this is post Morsi. And so all the lifelines that Hamas has in terms of tunnels that would allow for the entry of goods or people are now uh, inaccessible. And there's a severe financial crisis. The movement is unable to provide services for the Palestinians in Gaza. And the Palestinians are beginning to turn against Hamas. So they begin to see Hamas as a reason for their suffering. Of course, they understand that The blockade is the fundamental reason, but the blockade is not something they can change. Hamas is. And so Hamas becomes the recipient of rage in the Gaza Strip. And uh, more deeply than that is back to the point that I was making before, which is that Hamas was fundamentally ambivalent about governance. It wanted to govern only in so far as it's able to use its governance to put forward and maintain a form of a Palestinian political project that's committed to resistance. And so by 2014, all of these things, meant that Hamas's governance was actually becoming uh, a form of a shackling of Hamas, that it was unable to continue to operate either as an effective governance authority because of the financial constraints or really to wage any kind of effective uh, resistance project against Israelis.
0: At that point in 2014, Hamas, you write, had upheld a ceasefire in place since 2012, since Israel's Operation Pillar of Defense war on Gaza. And what that showed was that Hamas could control and prevent rocket fire from Gaza, from, from Hamas soldiers and also soldiers from other factions like Islamic Jihad. But you write, quote, Israeli policies continued unabated. In, in fact, they, they intensified. That year, Israel launched Operation Protective Edge, which you write represented a new extreme in Israel's assault on civilian lives and infrastructure. Airstrikes were just leveling entire tower blocks of apartments as much as we see today. 2,200 Palestinians were killed, 1,492 of them civilians, 551 children. You write, quote, this was the highest level of civilian casualties Israel had inflicted on the Palestinians in any one year since 1967. The exceptionally high death toll of children under the age of 16 gave rise to accusations that Israel was systematically targeting Gaza's younger population. Stepping back for a moment, lay out the arc of military conflicts between Israel and Hamas-ruled Gaza, incredibly one-sided affairs that killed handfuls of Israelis and hundreds or thousands of Palestinians. Explain this longer arc of conflicts or wars or assaults from 2007 to the eve of Hamas's recent operation. Did did Israel's military operations against Gaza become more extreme and overwhelming over time? Or was there just more of a consistent pattern as the Israeli security establishment phrase Mowing the lawn might suggest.
1: I mean, mowing the lawn was fundamentally a, a doctrine that was aimed at undermining Hamas's military capabilities intermittently. So every every few months or years, Israel would launch an operation that would theoretically be focused on Hamas's military infrastructure. In the early years of Hamas's rule, uh, the movements firepower was not as developed as it would become in later years. And so in some ways, the Israeli military assaults were less severe than what they would become. But I think it's important to mention that Israel's military assaults on the Gaza Strip never focused only on military Infrastructure, Because of what the Gaza Strip is, how densely populated it is, because of its uh, reality as essentially a series of refugee camps connected to each other, uh, Hamas was operating in civilian areas and Israel was responding in civilian areas with disproportionate force that was aimed at undermining both... Hamas's military capabilities, but also Hamas's appetite and the appetite of Palestinians in Gaza generally to continue to support armed resistance. So in some ways, it was focused on exacting civilian and uh, civilian cost uh, from its military assaults. What we see begin to change in 2014 is that Israel begins to employ a doctrine called the Dahya Doctrine. This is a doctrine that Israel had used against Palestinians in Lebanon in the past. And it's in reference specifically to Dahya, which is a neighborhood in South Lebanon. It's a very it's a heavily populated residential area, which Hezbollah uh, has a lot of its political leaders based there. And the Dahia Doctrine was basically a strategy by Israel to level residential buildings and to attack indiscriminately in civilian areas in order to exact a high toll on Hezbollah. That's a doctrine that Israel then employs in 2014. So it's still within the mowing the lawn. So it's still an operation that's seen as a sporadic attempt to undermine Hamas's military capabilities. But because of the way the 2014 assault began, where it was clear that the movement, Hamas, exhibited a more advanced form of rocket fire than it did, let's say, in 2008, shortly after the blockade was instituted. Uh, And because of, at the time, Netanyahu's own domestic challenges, the government needed to exact a much higher toll. And so it really launched a 51-day campaign that was brutal, and for Palestinians, more brutal than anything that's ever been seen before on on a captive, essentially refugee population. And in that policy, they directed fire at residential apartment blocks so they started le- leveling some of the highest towers in gaza and, and in the most densely populated areas and that was a it it was a very shocking uh, development for palestinians in gaza and in some ways it's partially the reason why for, for years after that uh, hamas was actually more active in in pulling back resistance
0: We've discussed how Hamas has looked to balance its commitments or to integrate its commitments to governance, its reluctant commitment to governance, and its more profound commitment to resistance. And I want to drill down to some specifics about how Hamas has governed, considering that its governance is cited so frequently as a way to demonstrate that the organization is fundamentally anti-democratic – and in your book, you describe their political style as a soft authoritarianism, which has included some degree of violent repression of their political opponents, particularly Fatah, but they also act to some degree in coordination with a pretty heterogeneous group of resistance forces, including secular communists from the PFLP. And interestingly, they have not imposed Sharia law in Gaza. How much is this governing style due to the constant blockade of Gaza and the frequent military campaigns against it, is Hamas pluralists willing to work with within a resistance oriented national front or are they compromising their vision for a more authoritarian Islamic system precisely due to the difficulties of imposing such a system under occupation?
1: I think that's a really important question. And there's really the only way to answer it is to try to look at the track record. I think we've seen in the in the times in which Hamas was operating within political corridors. So after it won the election in 2006, the movement very actively tried to put forward an inclusive political agenda. So it tried to bring Fatah into the governing structure. And so... The movement, I don't think, is against pluralistic politics. The problem is that in the instances where we see today the party is engaging with Fatah, let's say, in possible reconciliation agreements, it fundamentally believes that the project that Fatah is putting forward is a project that is based in Palestinian capitulation. And so it has taken a strong position against engagement in pluralism or in, in sort of plurality with, with Fatah. I think the reconciliation agreements between the two parties have kind of stalled. But to go back to, to your specific question around governance, I think it's really important to understand Hamas's governance within the context of the blockade. It's Uh, limited in terms of what it's able to do and what it isn't able to do. And that means that its governance is less than ideal. The accusation that it is anti-democratic is somehow put forward as if the movement is expected to run democratic elections in Gaza. The problem is that that is already presupposing an acceptance of Gaza being separated from the rest of the Palestinian territories. There can be no elections in Gaza, separately from elections in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, if we are to talk about Palestinian elections for the Palestinian Authority. And so the reality that it's only been uh, that the the, uh, governance structure in Gaza doesn't have a renewed mandate is a problem that isn't Hamas's problem. It's a problem that is a problem of the Palestinian Authority, including Mahmoud Abbas and Fatah in, in the West Bank. And when I look about, I mean, I describe Hamas's governance as soft authoritarianism because the movement has certainly undermined political plurality. So it's it hasn't allowed for mobilization or organizing by Fatah, uh, let's say, in Gaza. And there's a history to this. Part of the reason, not to justify it, but part of the reason is because there's a degree of paranoia. The, the past... Mobilization by Fatah has been aimed had been aimed after the 2006 elections at initiating a coup and undermining uh, Hamas's democratic rise. Uh, But the movement has also shown authoritarianism in other ways. It has cracked down on social activities. There isn't as much free. Uh, freedom of speech or organizing in the Gaza Strip. And there has been a crackdown on protesters at various times over the course of the past 16 years. So I think it's important to call out Hamas on those deficiencies in its governance, while also contextualizing it within the particular challenges of existing under occupation, uh, and specifically under blockade. But the one thing that I think is worth mentioning is that this this language of saying that hamas is anti-democratic or authoritarian in some ways is used uh, and has a bigger judgmental factor attached to it than let's say when the same language is used in the west bank so i for my for my for my own purposes i don't see that hamas is more more authoritarian than the palestinian authority in the west bank which is equally anti-democratic has equally cracked down on organizing on freedom of speech and on political plurality. Yet the international community lets them off the hook because they're committed to security coordination with Israel and somehow focus on this issue with Hamas to suggest that the movement is beyond the pale and can't be engaged with.
0: Hamas, as we've discussed, has criticized the Palestinian Authority and Fatah for their capitulation to security coordination with Israel. But Fatah has suggested that they could be found guilty of a similar charge. You write, quote, Responding to Hamas's consistent condemnation of the Palestinian Authority's security coordination with Israel, Fatah accused Hamas of succumbing behind closed doors to calling resistance acts of aggression, abiding by ceasefires with Israel, calling rocket fire treasonous, and obtaining rewards for good behavior from Israeli generals. While some of these accusations are self-serving exaggerations, there is also an element of truth behind them. And... There is this truth behind them, but you also draw an important distinction between what was Hamas's containment on the one hand and Fatah and the PLO's pacification on the other, a distinction that was made very apparent and clear by Hamas on October 7th. You told the New Yorker in the wake of Hamas's operation, quote, the scale of the offensive and its, and its success from Hamas's perspective mean that we're actually in a new paradigm in which Hamas's attacks are not restricted to renegotiating a new reality in the Gaza Strip but rather are capable of fundamentally undermining Israel's belief that it can maintain a regime of apartheid against Palestinians interminably with no cost to its population turning to October 7th why does it seem and i know that we can only speculate to some extent, why does it seem that Hamas acted in this particular way when it did? How much did this have to do with settler violence and a renewed round of armed resistance in the West Bank, with with the ongoing push for Arab-Israeli state normalization, particularly with Saudi Arabia, with the intense domestic discord within Israeli-Jewish society? And then also with Hamas's own contested place within the Palestinian national movement. And to what extent more generally, as you suggested in your response to The New Yorker, just generally was it in response to this Israeli posture seemingly ratified by so much of the world that the Palestinian problem could be permanently managed and contained at the margins and and never solved? What was the context for Hamas's operation? And why has it felt like such a breaking point for the status quo?
1: The context, I mean, so there's the issue of the broader context and there's the issue of the immediate timing. The broader context is one where, as you said, I argue in my book, Hamas was in some ways effectively contained, that it was beginning to act in a way where it would limit resistance from the Gaza Strip, certainly from other factions like Islamic Jihad and other others, in order to maintain calm. And as far as the Israelis and others understood, that looked like a, a form of indirect security coordination and a form of curtailment of Hamas's power and, and making it restricted to the Gaza Strip in a way that was not too disruptive for Israeli civilians. Now, during this time, Hamas ideologically never changed its ideology. Unlike the security coordination of Fatah, which is grounded in recognizing the state of Israel and partitioning Palestine, Hamas never conceded ideologically, which is why I argue in the book that that containment was effective, but it was likely to be temporary. Because there was always recourse by Hamas to go back to the notion of what its actual ideology is, which is the use of armed struggle for, for liberation. And absent any change in the structure of apartheid or occupation, the drivers for resistance would always be there. And so the broader context is one in which, with Hamas effectively being contained Israeli apartheid is becoming more vicious and becoming more acceptable internationally and regionally. So it's becoming more vicious in more restrictions on the Gaza Strip, more settler attacks against Palestinians in the West Bank, more disruptions on the status quo in Jerusalem, agitation for Palestinian communities within Israel itself to increase crime and violence among Palestinians. So there's all these efforts in which Israel now under the most explicitly right-wing fascist government there's ever been in Israel, is sort of pushing forward ideas of colonization and ethnic cleansing. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is uh, ingratiating itself with Israel with a U.S. visa waiver program and pushing forward normalization agreements with Saudi Arabia. So there's there's a very upsetting constellation of events where Palestinians are becoming more exposed to Israeli colonial violence while Israel is becoming more politically and diplomatically welcomed. And so this is the context in which Hamas chooses to upend the idea that it's been contained and to emerge as a party that is protecting Palestinians from this aggression and reasserting the Palestinian voice in the international arena. Now, so that's the context. The specific timing is there's a, this this wasn't an operation that was planned in weeks it was clearly an operation that had been long planned and the specific timing i mean i think there's several factors i think the most important for me um, and others might disagree is the perceived weakness of the israeli military the fact that there were that many reservists protesting the changes that the Netanyahu government was pushing forward in Israel meant that the army was the weakest it's ever been. And there's a certain degree of smugness here because the army really did believe that they successfully quelled resistance from the Gaza Strip. And so there was a kind of uh, turning uh, or letting go of their uh, sort of full preparedness in in the Gaza Strip and focusing specifically on protecting settlers while they expand their violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. And so I think it was the right moment to act militarily in terms of being able to exact the greatest cost from Israel's army.
0: You write, quote, Hamas's use of violence, like the PLO before it, has been rooted in arguments of legitimacy, justice, and self-defense. Given Israel's violent occupation of Palestinian land, arms were seen as the only recourse for resistance. Decades of failed diplomacy have done little to undermine this argument. Yet there is no question that Hamas's reliance on jihad has had devastating implications for the Palestinian people. Aside from the moral bankruptcy and the corrosive effect of targeting and killing civilians, dedication to armed resistance against a superb foe like Israel has led to the disintegration of the Palestinian struggle. Strategically, this approach has not only failed; it has also threatened to erode the very social fabric of the Palestinian community under occupation. The argument and the analysis are very straightforward, but but as you say, just in that you know very same quote, nonviolence has also failed to win concessions from Israel. The two thousand eighteen and nineteen March of Return at the Gaza apartheid fence saw mass nonviolent protest to which Israel responded by killing more than 200 and injuring thousands. And BDS, Boycott Divestment Sanctions, a classic nonviolent resistance strategy, has been ferociously demonized and repressed. How is it possible to conduct a meaningful strategic debate in a context where Israel and the US do everything possible to ensure that every single strategy will fail.
1: I mean, I think that's that's really where we're at. For Israelis, for the Israeli political establishment and the American administrations, the only good Palestinian is a dead Palestinian or a silent one. There's really no other way. All forms of resistance, as you say, popular resistance is met with force. Boycott and divestment and economic resistance is labeled anti-Semitic or terroristic. Going to the International Criminal Court or the International Court of Justice is labeled legal terrorism by Israeli uh, politicians. And even writing or culture or advocacy on campus is a form of intellectual terrorism. So what we see really is an effort to try to make the Palestinians disappear, because this is the only thing that the Israelis can accept the the reality of this is because Israel is a settler colonial state and in settler colonial states, the indigenous has to disappear. They have to be erased because otherwise they continue to be reminders of the injustice that is at the heart of that state being created. There's no way Israel and Israeli settlers don't understand that the foundation of their state is ethnic cleansing. It's, it's there in their history, they're aware of it. And Palestinians by their mere presence are a reminder of that injustice. Now, regardless of whether they think it was an injustice or not, it's still rooted in the expulsion of Palestinians from their territory. They might justify it as something that happened in the context of war, but still fundamentally the presence of Palestinians is a reminder of what the foundations of their state are about. And so rather than dealing with that history, rather than dealing with that political reality that Palestinians are bringing to the table, Israel and the U.S. in successive administrations have focused on making sure that Palestinians are depoliticized, that they're accepted only as a people who live with certain civil rights and quietly and in some ways gratefully, and any kind of political demands are are are. Uh, dismantled or removed. In that context, any form of resistance against Israeli apartheid is unacceptable, regardless of what form it takes. Now, what this has meant is that for Palestinians, armed resistance has, in some ways, become one of the ways in which the international community can be awakened from its slumber. So if you look at October 7th, the reason why Palestine is now on the agenda is because Israeli Jews were killed. You know, the, the up until October 7th, it was the deadliest year for Palestinians. More than 50 children had been murdered by Israeli forces before October 7th had happened, but this was nowhere on the global agenda. The only thing that brought it on the global agenda was armed resistance. Now, people might say, well, yes, it brought it onto the global agenda, but then initiated ethnic cleansing and genocide of Palestinians. So Palestinians are still bearing the biggest cost of that. Palestinian civilian death is still bearing the biggest cost of that. That's correct. But the alternative, as far as Hamas was concerned, was a slow death. They were to continue being strangulated in the Gaza Strip and have civilians killed day in, day out without anyone saying anything. So the inability to deal with the politics at the heart of the Palestinian question is really saying we accept Palestinian debt. That's a fair price to pay to maintain Israel as a Jewish state. And unfortunately, that's not going to be sustainable because Palestinians will always resist as long as they exist as a people.
0: After the Hamas operation, we saw a snarky response here and there on the American left. What did you think decolonization looks like? But is it really so obvious what decolonizing Palestine looks like? The Palestinian liberation movement, of course, is far from monolithic, as your book shows. And settler colonialism has throughout history appeared in rather diverse forms, taken root in different ways— and taken on different trajectories in different places. What's at stake as various people and organizations point to Algeria and South Africa respectively as models to be referenced and and perhaps emulated? What have these debates over how to liberate Palestine looked like over this long history of the Palestinian national movement that you tell in your book? And where at this bleak moment might they be heading next?
1: Look, I think the stakes are higher than they've ever been at this moment. And I firmly believe that decolonization in Palestine will be context-specific. I think we will learn from Algeria and we will learn from South Africa, but neither of these examples offer the solution, quote-unquote, for what Palestinian liberation looks like. We have to do the heavy lifting as Palestinians and allies, to figure out and understand what decolonization means for us. And this is something that is not only specific to Palestine. This is something that's universal. We're living in the 21st century. Palestine is one of two remaining settler colonies slash apartheid states. And the challenges that Palestinians face are very specific to Palestine, but they also have universal implications around racialized oppression, and around power and domination. So we see this already. We see what happened on October 7th is now spiraling regionally and globally. So Palestine is in some ways at the center of what it means for us to think about decolonization, what it means for us to actually go into a post-colonial world. We need to do the work of figuring out what decolonization in Palestine means. Now, when people on the left come out with this, as you say, snarky, Statement that decolonization is not a metaphor, or what what did you think decolonization means? I think we also need to understand why that statement comes out. We the the shattering of partitions around the Gaza Strip of Palestinians from Gaza going into territory that their grandparents had been expelled from is huge. Uh, physically and psychologically for Palestinians. It kind of evokes the idea that we are reclaiming the land. Now, of course, it's not that straightforward. And of course, there was Israeli Jewish civilian death and tragedy and massacres that happened, which we need to talk about and account for. But that moment of rupture is, in its essence, something that carried the spirit of what decolonization might feel like or what it might look like. And I think we need to build on that work, to try to try to hold onto that moment, but to do that ethically. Because ultimately, decolonization, if it is to be effective, is not one that is going to be grounded in bloodletting and killing of civilians. It's going to be a process that's focused on dismantling a structure of oppression. And of course, there will be violence in that. I don't think there's been any anti-colonial struggle that isn't violence. But there's a difference between violence and armed resistance and the kind of uh, bloodletting that that could sort of spiral out of control without an effective ideological and strategic political project. And I think that's the work we need to do to figure out what that project is that can hold uh, an effective strategy of decolonization and move it forward.
0: Well, Tarek Bakoni, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me, Daniel.
0: Rek Bakoni serves as the president of the board of Al-Shabaka, the Palestinian policy network. He's the former senior analyst for Israel-Palestine and Economics of Conflict at the International Crisis Group, based in Ramallah, and the author of Hamas Contained, The Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, After noting that, the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, turning from its home, where it assumes respectable forms, to the colonies, where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at TheDigRadio.com. Follow us on Twitter at TheDigRadio, same, on Instagram and Facebook, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such platform, you can also leave us a nice review. Those ratings and reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.